welcome to the Assembly Line, an NES homebrew podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kevin from K-Hand Games. And Bo from Soul Goose Productions. And we are here, once again, to talk about the greatest thing in the history of the world, homebrews. How are you doing, Bo? You know, Kevin, I've been, I've been well. Uh, things have been... It's, it's a new decade. That's exciting uh, to me. Well, we, we can. I won't go down that. I, I don't agree with that. I don't think the 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 decade starts until next year. Oh, you you on the Mayan calendar or whatever? Well, I mean, there is no year zero, is there? There was. Was there? It was kind of that first year of nothing. It's like a. It's like an infant when they're zero. They're they're still alive. They're still there. Still counted. How? When do you switch from? Speaking of infants age in months and switch to years, what, what's that age? It's like 18, which is already past year one. Mm, okay, so our podcast is no longer an infant. Longer what? Our podcast is no longer an infant. Oh, look at that. It's like two and a half years old. It's all grown up. Yep, yep. Even though we neglect it <laughs> like good parents. <laughs> Kevin, it, you know, it, it's been a while and a lot of things have changed in our own personal lives and our homebrewing lives and what at forum lives and everything else. And, you know, it's time to revisit some topics, I think, that, uh, you know, our answers have kind of changed and we've had to think about some things as the time has passed. So you had a question for me. I did, and I thought it was a pretty good question, but you said, hold that thought, we're going to talk about it on the podcast, and here we are. I do like (laughs) to do that. All right, so, with all the thoughts and like creative ideas and inspiration that we as developers are sort of bombarded with every day from other games, other mediums, really anything, like how, how do we as developers decide what to focus our creative ideas on since time is so limited especially as we get older you know people with families we have less and less time to dedicate to this hobby that we love and i don't know like how, how do you like get all of that white noise and just decide to focus on this to me that one's re- the, this is really worth thinking about because you know, i've been doing this for six almost seven years and when you start out everything is an idea and like i mean that those first like two years i've got like thick notebooks full of thoughts and like what if i did this and you're you're learning the system and it's giving you new thoughts of like oh i could do things this way or that way but that also creates whole different games and gameplay experiences than i thought before and story ideas and world ideas and setting ideas (laughs) and you know you're kind of like a wide-eyed billy mumfrey uh, full of (laughs) optimism and ready to go and you start to realize that it might be one of those billy mumfrey stories unbridled enthusiasm maybe unbridled enthusiasm (laughs) because the 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 deeper into this thing we call homebrew you get the more you realize games take a long time to make yes even basic games like it's crazy Good, you just contradicted what I was going to say. I was going to say the bigger the game, the worse it is, but yes, even small games. Well, I mean, that statement holds true, but I'm just saying it it does get exponentially more difficult, but even the most basic of basic games 
uh, like let's just say a kung fu clone, that that still takes some months to finish. Yeah, I was gonna say Spookatron because I view it as a medium-sized project, whereas uh, Tall Bear always likes to tell me it's just a tiny, small little project that you know should shouldn't have taken that long. But whatever. Well, when you tri- when you tackle projects as uh, as vast as he is, I'm sure everything seems small in comparison. Oh, true, true. I just <laughs> I give him a hard time for hassling me, but. So you and I, uh, we we are kind of two different sides of a coin when it comes to projects. Um, and I know and you don't. politics. Not I'm as just kidding. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I don't think you really know where I'm going with this, but here's here's what I mean. Um, okay. So. You started out in 2008, 2009, somewhere in those really early years. The uh, I don't want to say the golden age. It's more like prehistoric. But So you did Frogger, which, great success. Uh, and then you did Sneak and Peek, which... Uh, Homebrew of the Year. Yeah, if, if I demand a recount. Ah, <laughs> uh, Chad's. And then you kind of announced uh, Larry Unicorn Study Hall, Thomas Was Alone, uh, Risk, uh, a bunch. Like, you, you've announced and completed, I will say, a lot of projects. And, like, that's how you've kind of maintained momentum and stuff. And so, like, looking at this question of how do you maintain focus and decide what to work on, is very different for you because you've been very public with what you've kind of thought you might work on. Whereas uh, I think I've announced two projects and I don't like to say anything because I'm afraid of that. Well, I, on one hand, I, I agree with you that I did announce a lot of projects, but there I'm was a hard time either. No, no, I'm definitely not taking it that way. But after, let's say after I announced my second or third project, um, back in the infancy of Nintendo Age, RIP. Um, when people started giving me like suggestions and you know just like feedback that I didn't ask for, and of course when you make something public, you're going to get feedback, so I shouldn't be angry about it. But uh, people, I don't know, I I I didn't like the attention, so I did scale back on kind of how I go about sharing uh, what I'm doing these days. These days, I just post gifs on the twitter but yeah anyway your point stands go on no but like in the midst of that how did you decide what to work on like so you announced larry and then larry kind of was like this thing and then it died and then it came back like five years later and you finished it when i get motivated to work on something i sort of obsess over it and it's all that i want to work on but it seems like every project that I start to do, I'll hit some unforeseen roadblock that I don't quite know how to tackle. Like a flying hat? Yeah, usually it's some sort of just, not necessarily advanced programming, but to me it's advanced and I can't quite wrap my brain around it. So I'll realize, oh, I don't know how to do that. Oh wait, I have this project on the back burner too. I know how to do that for a while. So. I, I push forward on something until I hit something that doesn't come easy to me. 
and then I switch gears. So uh, I wouldn't say that Larry fell by the wayside. I just needed graphics. <laughs> so oh, yeah, that yeah. one that one did have that, and then ET kind of I don't know what happened with ET. <laughs> I finished ET pretty quickly. Oh yeah, I, th- I guess I thought there was a larger announcement. I'm thinking of a couple others that. Uh, yeah, well, maybe. we can we can bring Unicorn up. Oh, Unicorn is waiting on something. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but the main the main one that I ran into programming issues with that I couldn't overcome uh, was probably Gatsby and maybe a little bit of Risk. But I haven't really given Risk uh, the full effort that I need to. Well, there was recently King's Quest as well. Yeah, but that's not something I got uh, hung up on. I just got hired to do another project. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Ooh, very interesting. Um, on my own side, I, I guess I would kind of say the same. Like, I get a bunch of ideas, but most of mine are like ideas for either stories or worlds or like settings, uh, themes. And then I kind of, it's not that I kind of lose interest with them, but th- there's like a design roadblock, a, a large thing that I can't get around. Like with Family Vacation, it was this very realistic, like you're driving across country. Well, it's a real country with, you know, real miles and you're traveling a real speed and the clock is a real clock. And suddenly everything is very not loosey goosey, soul goose. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> It, you know, I, I couldn't fathom like how to quite get that all to work. I could, I could get it to work, but I don't think it'd be fun. Uh, so then that led to like redesigning large parts of that, which led to some other things that we'll get to some other day. But it's interesting to me, you know, I've done so many direct ports or taking direct inspiration from things. My hangups are always. I don't know how to do this. And your hangups seem to be like conceptual game related ideas, which is, it is a completely different problem. Well, I get kind of obsessed like when, because I've seen enough games through testing and even just playing old licensed one where it's like, here's a great idea and really not great execution. And had they just done these like two or three things different, like it would have been a top 10 game. Yeah. So I, I really, I'm really scared about design, especially like family vacation again was I took out, I didn't want to do a complete Oregon trail copycat. So I took out things like being able to barter and trade items. Cause you know, it's 20th century and you don't really do that much on the side of the road anymore, hopefully. Right. And <laughs> when you take that out, like the whole game breaks and it's not, you know, what do you do when you're stuck and you know what happens here? And, and to my, uh, to to my own fault i get overly obsessed with some of that but it also leads to some different ideas like well that's a yeah, that's not a project i really want to talk about yet but we'll get there um <laughs> i've been waiting a while to play it well there's that one but there's a different one um well and with my rpg stuff like i was really hung up on world design like oh that's scary i don't want to design worlds because you know once you start actually putting stuff on paper screen then it can be bad and well if you just never put it there it can never be bad (laughs) and so i had to find ways like uh, convention quest is a good example that got around my fears of world design because it was modeled after a real life location and 
that was like a nice, easy transition. And yeah, it, it actually has helped a lot. Now I'm designing whole areas for my my RPG and kind of enjoying it. And I have that experience to fall back on. And yeah, but I can't even imagine designing like convention quest to me was already like a pretty big game. Like there was a pretty big area to explore. Lots of people to talk to and you're designing, you're designing full worlds. Like I just can't even imagine how overwhelming that is and time intensive. Uh, it was, and it is currently, and I, I found some new ways to do things than how I did them in Convention Quest, which I still have never really talked about and probably need to do a blog post, uh, among other things, but one thing that I found to help me, and this is where it sort of gets into what inspires you, is I, I, I do a lot of image searching. I, I play a lot, I try to play a lot of games, but I also just do a lot of random image searching, and cool screens pop up. And so with the RPG, what I've been doing is some of these screens are just so inspiring. And as I try to recreate them, I'm learning to draw whole areas. And like, I never recreate it one-to-one. I kind of like look at it and then look away. And then by the time I'm done with it, you couldn't even sort of tell, but I'm finding a lot of inspiration. Other people's work, I, I guess is where I'm going with that. Well, that's, that's sort of where I draw my inspiration too, except for I, I don't change it. <laughs> you do it in the in the full term of like gameplay and yes. the game itself. Sometimes yes. though, you're more original than you give yourself credit for. Eh. Maybe occasionally. I guess. It's so much easier to just take something someone else has already done and put my name on it. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you when do you have like a definitive moment when you commit to a project? Not really. I think that when I, when the idea strikes me that I, cause I'll toss around ideas in my head and not really start. I'll just think, Oh, that would be fun to do. Oh, that would be fun to do. But then I'll see something or read something and it will, it'll just strike something inside me. And I'll say, you know what? I'm going to start that. Um, and once I do that, I don't stop until either the game's done or I run into one of those uh, sort of roadblocks that I mentioned earlier. So it's, it's usually something that I've wanted to do because there's always things in the back of your head that you're like, Oh, that would be cool to do. That would be cool to do. But like knowing how hard and time intensive and just intense it is to make a game. um, You don't want to like fully put a lot of thought or me anyway. I don't want to put a lot of thought into it because once you decide to do it, the next X months of your life are blocked out, basically. And, and you're you know working on creating this thing that didn't exist before. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, I, I don't really know what it is that makes me decide to commit to something. Um, but when I do, it sort of balls to the wall. I'm going full speed ahead. Yeah, I, I guess with for my own stuff, it's when... And this is probably why I don't go public, but it's when I finally go public and start to talk about something to me that is like, this is actually happening. You're going to bug me about it and ask me. So I guess I'm doing it like Super Bat Puncher. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Then then it'll just drive you crazy and then you, you can't finish and you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Eventually resurface and make an even more amazing game. But I, I wish that would be my story. <laughs> uh, also with committing has been I, I've kind of pushed myself into projects that 
are kind of backed by somebody else in some way. Like they're either for somebody else or with somebody else. And that forces, that gives me the accountability to just have to finish them. So when, when you do something, like when you do something for someone else, you're basically giving them full control to dictate like what's in the game at that point, right? Oh, usually it's all up to me. I just have a deadline. Okay. I just, I can't imagine you being okay with like, you just seem so strongly opinionated on like what you want to put in a game that I can't even imagine you like being a hired hand and them like saying, okay, this is what I want. Or like you sending them something and them being like, eh, can you change this and this? <laughs> every once tim got me to change a few things in convention quest where i was like that's a terrible decision but <laughs> i also like weeks later realized like that probably wasn't like the biggest deal All i right. could live with it um, <laughs> but at the but time yeah, no, it definitely feels like a big deal well it does and you got to pick some of your battles and you got to do all that but you're, you're right I, I do feel very strongly about design because <laughs> that's what i mean graphics are pretty sound is great and both those can really screw up a game but if you haven't thought out some basic things like yeah it just all breaks down so fast et well i mean as as the programmer like that is basically your signature like i if the game is clunky and is broken like it's the programmer's fault there's no one else yeah. to blame. <laughs> well, you'd have to pay me a lot of money just to uh, program whatever you tell me to and not ha- try to have any say to make it better. Um, right. Which you can always reach me at soulgoosproductions at gmail.com. <laughs> That's the case. But um, how, many, how many dollar signs would that take? Five? Five dollar signs? Let's work on paying off my student loan. So if you want to help with that project, um, <laughs> I'm all ears. So nice. there's one, one last little thing I want to talk about, and that is with inspiration and finding... So when you said things like games, other mediums, I assume that means images, things you see around the interwebs and, and whatnot. Sure. Um, do those different things tend to correlate to different like sizes of projects? Do, they, do different things inspire you different ways? Mm, I mean, I'm sure they do, but I can't really put... Like ask ask that question a different way. I don't think I fully understand what you're asking. I'll give you my example, and you can see if it makes any sense to you. Um, okay. So, like when I'm cruising through the images for oh, oh this weird Japanese RPG that I just discovered that's never been in English on this weird obscure system, like I'll start seeing images of it, and those inspire me to like for setting or graphics or like a story arc. Whereas if I see something about like a, a 2600 game or Coleco something or another, it more inspires me for like, this would be a whole like different genre away from my normal things. Uh, like, oh, this jetpack if you flew this way and like I could make a whole game around this and it just like takes off in a whole different direction than content. Yeah, I think I sort of live in a vacuum. Like I've, I've, We're not. <laughs> I've cultivated my Twitter feed to like basically just show point and click stuff. So that's, all that I see now for like every system under the sun, point and click stuff, point and click stuff. So it co- it makes me want to constantly make more point and click stuff. Um, but I'll see, I'll be watching like a movie or a TV show and there oh. will be like an idea or like a theme that'll pop up. And I'll think, you know, like that would be really cool to take that idea and like wrap it around like an RPG and make that like the central sort of focus. Um, but then 
thinking of the you know the time investment to sort of bring that into fruition scares me away. But uh, yeah, I, I'm inspired by all different types of mediums for sure. Mm. That's why all platformer inspiration ends up in the folder called platformer, so I don't have to look at it and go down that path. <laughs> so we're here today to talk about a game, are we not, Bo? Oh, most podcasts, we are generally here to talk about a game at some point or another. I mean, you're half of the best podcast, I'm half of the best podcast, and in this podcast, we talk about NES. I was wondering if you were going to bring that up or if we were going to save it toward the end, but yes, <laughs> we are both the two halves of the greatest podcast. Um, and that that alone will get your game onto an episode, I guess. Yes, all you got to do is put us in the manual, like this guy did, for this game called Nebs and Devs. Wait, how did you figure out that he put us in the manual, though? Did you actually open your copy, or uh, how'd that work? Yeah, I when I was preparing for the podcast, I pulled out the manual just to uh, kind of check it out and see... Uh, how it was looking and you know what kind of info was in there and i'll get into more detail in a little bit but man it is probably the prettiest manual i've seen come out the font choices he used are gorgeous the layout is gorgeous the colors are gorgeous it just makes me so happy and we're mentioned in the very back of it so i'll take it so there's that (laughs) uh yeah manuals Boxes, labels, everything, I believe, were printed by Frank. And, yes. well, strangely enough, Frank's not in the manual. Huh. Well, yes, he is. No. He's at the bottom. It says, thank you, Frank, for the beautiful boxes and man. Oh, fine. Well, <laughs> I just knew that from sitting at Frank's house and seeing his wall of projects he's been involved with, which <laughs> probably someday we should do Armed for Battle. But today we are doing... Nebs and Debs. So, Kevin. Yes. This is always a favorite question of mine, and I I think quite a few other people enjoy this question as well, but can you (laughs) describe for me what Nebs and Debs entails? I still, when you ask this question, I still don't know what you're looking for, but I'm going to give you the Kevin answer. So, (laughs) it is a colorful platformer where you are a female protagonist, and you have crash-landed on this foreign planet, and you have to dash through various levels, collect gems to keep your timer going, and the end goal is to reacquire four pieces of your spaceship to get off that rock. (sighs) But how? Describe for me how (laughs) you do this. Dashing! Dashing. Dash mechanic. Dashing across the screen yep. like in Legend of Zelda with the Pegasus boots? Close, except it's a side-scroller platformer. Oh, good to know. Yes, and you're like crashing through like rocks, and you get what, like you jump and you get one dash per jump, unless you hit an enemy, and then you get an additional jump for every enemy, or sorry, an additional dash for every enemy you hit. So. The more complex the level layout and the enemy layout, you can get some really sort of elaborate 
uh, dashing going on. It's a lot of fun. You know what? That was not your worst description ever. <laughs> Just, I'll be kind. I appreciate you, Bo, and I appreciate everyone out there who is not making fun of me. Yeah, they, they are. Don't worry. <laughs> so yes, Nebs and Debs, a side-scrolling, it's a forced one-way scrolling platformer, kind of like SMB1, where you can't go backwards, so you have to make very wise decisions along the way, but you're jumping, you're dashing, uh, you can do some extra mechanics with the dash, where you kind of like go off springs and then backwards dash, but you can't go too far with the scrolling, otherwise you'll miss your thing you're trying to get. Uh, it's level-based, there's 12 levels... There are, it's hard. Uh, there's, you know, like SMB1, you have continues, not passwords. You're only given, no, you're not even given continues. You run out of lives, you're done. And you got to start yep. all over. And yeah. So can you tell me anything about the history of Nebs and Debs? How did this game come about? Where did it come from? All that jazz. Well, I'm not the homebrew historian that you are, but I know that its origins, at least I believe, stem from its inclusion in the 2016 Nestev competition. Is that correct? It is correct. That was a prequel quest to this game that Chris... Uh, so the game was made by Chris Cacciatore, like the Italian pot sauce that he hates, <laughs> who... He, at the time, you know, because Chris and I had worked together before this game came out, starting sometime either in 2016 or maybe 2015. Uh, we'd worked together. He was just Chris to me. And then suddenly he was Dulahan Soft. And I was like, that's a very, like, multi-syllable name. Like, okay, good stuff. <laughs> but then he came, yeah, he came out with this... Um, game for the Nestev competition and I was like wow like I didn't really realize you could program you just did amazing art because that's what he'd been doing for Spookatron and stuff and we'll we'll get into more of the history of Chris in just a bit but uh the game itself most people know it from the 2016 Nestev competition and that was just like a snippet of what you might get to see and Nebs and Debs did not win that year, but it was up against very strong competition, being uh, Broke Studios Twin Dragons, which which won. Nebs and Debs came in second, and uh, I forget now what came in third, but it was also another very good game. Like that was just the year of like solid platformers, plus that third game that I can't remember. Hmm. It was one of them. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, you know, even when I went to go look this up, I was like, oh, that happened like two years ago. And then I was like, no, that was 2018. And then I was like, well, 2017? No. 2016. That feels like forever ago, Kevin. It does. Time is flying. And every year, so many good projects are coming out now that it's overwhelming to keep up with. You and I really covered the 2017 competition, which we will never ever do in that format again because you about murdered me too much too much <laughs> it was like five hours but like 10 hours of recorded interview yeah you were like hey we have three interviews lined up every day this week block <laughs> off some time <laughs> well i wish we'd been there for the 2016 competition <laughs> because between antoine and chris and that third project i can't remember like it would have been a really fun year to cover but instead we're going to cover it in 
2020 with perfect hindsight. Mm. Yes. Mm, Is nice. that the first, second, second uh, 2020 joke I've, we've told? Uh, hopefully not the last. We'll get some more in there, okay? Good. Anyways, uh, Chris, in true, so the game was targeted for the Enron mapper, which is not a mapper at all. It's the mapperless board where it's just the basic. It's what SMB1 was on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Excitabike, which everybody else pronounces Excitebike. Uh, <laughs> Ice Climber. Various other Enrom things that Kevin is clearly not going to help me out with, but whatever. Oh, I got, I got nothing. I don't pay attention to that stuff. I just think, is the game good? Aiken Peak was on Enrom. No, it wasn't. Nope, um, MMC one. Oh, jeez, you went ballsy with that. <laughs> All right. So, in typical Enrom fashion, there you use every last bite for actual game-related things. So the whole story. The items, the enemies, everything is in the manual. This is one of the most useful manuals that I've looked at. Uh, yeah, I feel like we had one thing story I noticed. Hour. Yeah, do you want to have a story hour? Is that what you're alluding to? Oh, no, I wasn't saying that. I, I mean, we could, we could, but... Well, and that's the one, that was the, the most unique thing, aside from the beautiful layout, is there's like an elaborate story. And even when it's like, describing the controls for the game it like describes them in like a paragraph fashion it's not just like you know up does this down does this it's like a story and it's written very beautifully like there's even things about you know the length of the protagonist's hair and oh she hasn't cut it because she's been in space for eight months or whatever so it's uh it seems like a lot of thought uh went into the production it's almost like Chris was a humanities major turned computer science major, but I, I don't know. That's just me guessing. Yeah, it doesn't sound point. realistic. No, no. I couldn't <laughs> be the only one, could I? Anyways, <laughs> um, so yes, Nebs and Debs has a nice elaborate story about a, about a female protagonist named Debs meeting this octopus thing named Nebs, and they smack into each other, and they are joined, and yeah, I read the Nestev version, which was the competition version, which was very like sharp and to the point, which was nice. Uh, Annual's good too; it's it's much more elaborate. But for those that like the visceral feel, the Nestev one wins for me. Anyway, <laughs> hopefully you're still there. Jeez, I'm here. I'm just I'm uh, I'm enjoying how passionate you get about certain things. Yeah, it's the little thing. I, I like it so. I have a problem where when I hear a really good story, I don't want to hear it again. And so, like, uh, Star Wars Expanded Universe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the first time is it. So if I play a remake that's really good, I don't really want to go back and play the original. But if I play the original and I love it, I never want to play a remake. It's So this had, I mean, I, I recall something to this degree... When Lizard came out, the demo for Lizard, you were like, oh. it's so good, I almost don't want to play the real game. I almost didn't, but as we know, Lizard is the yes, best Yes, we people. do know. We do know. We're talking about Nebs and Debs this time. As Sorry. Much as, can we just have another podcast about Lizard at some point? <laughs> Maybe that'll uh, just You'll be... have to get a, another co-host for that one. I don't need a co-host. I can go for two hours by myself. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
Just get, right. get both some beer. Yeah, yeah, there we go. So, what are, what are your impressions about playing Nebs and Debs? Um, besides your, you know, straight summary, like, give me, walk me through your, your journey. Okay. Um, what I like a lot about this game is... And not a lot of games do this well, and I don't know what it is structurally that allows a game to behave like this. But when you load up a game, and you first try it, and it's hard as shit, and you're like, I can't, like, I'm not going to be able to play this game. But you push through, because one, you pay for the game, and two, you have to record a podcast about it, so you want to give it some time. But... As time goes on, you're like, oh, wait, I'm kind of getting the hang of this. Oh, wait, this is kind of fun because I can breeze through these parts now. Like, you learn the level layouts and the mechanics of the game, and then it starts becoming enjoyable. But most, like, some games like Battle Kid, and, and don't get me wrong, a lot of people love Battle Kid. It was the, the one of the highest selling NES homebrews for a reason. But I feel like Battle Kid... There was no, um, what's the word? When you can become good at something. I don't think that Battle Kid had that threshold. It's just like, you have to luck through to get to the next checkpoint. And once you get through, you never have to worry about that section you just did again. But on this game, you can actually start grasping a feel for the game and you can become good at it. And I think that, uh, it's very, very, it's at one of the higher levels for uh, homebrew enjoyment and just game design in general. I will say, with Battle Kid, it was nice because, and this will not be my last comparison to Battle Kid, which should make Chris very anxious if when he is hearing this, because he's probably not hearing <laughs> this part. But, um, so with Battle Kid, like, you have checkpoints, and you can just... <sighs> play the same boss 50 times or 70 something is how long that first boss took me. (laughs) And you can just keep going at it. Whereas with Nebs and Debs, every time, you know, you go through your lives, you have to restart and to play through that first three or four levels, which is the same difficulty that a lot of people complained about with Spookatron is that you were playing the same 10 or 20 levels to get back to the one that, you know, had stopped you. And so I can appreciate that, but the level, what I like about Nebs and Debs versus a much larger sprawling game is that the levels are very short. Yeah. And once you master them, I mean, you just like fly through with, well, you dash through and <laughs> thank you. And like, that's it. Like you can really master it's that me. feeling of mastery. Yeah, exactly. Mastery. Like it's that feeling of mastery that gives you that satisfaction that like, yes, I'm kicking this level's ass. But you have to put in the time to get to that point. It's very satisfying. So, what did you like about the gameplay mechanics that kept you coming back to, you know, get to that level of mastery? I feel silly for saying it, but I think the main strength of the game is the dashing mechanic. And of course, that's obviously the main sort of feature of the game. You're going to be dashing. Um, But. The way that the game was programmed, um, it's sort of like a risk versus reward thing. 
if you go you're not quite sure if you can dash to hit this next enemy to continue your dash progression but it's sort of like if you take that risk you get that satisfaction of oh yeah like i made it i can dash further this is a lot of fun See, and that is probably that is one of my biggest cons with the game is dashing oh really because i Try as I might, and I had this problem in like Mega Man X3 and several other dashing games where I really have trouble with dashing. I don't know what it is that causes me to not be so great at it, but it is just hard for me. Well, I it's it's not a mechanic that's been you like jumping in a platformer is as old as time itself, and I feel like dashing you know, in the past few years with Celeste and some of the other indie games that have been coming out, it's sort of a, a newer take on a platformer. So I think, like, it feels kind of foreign. Your your muscle memory is not adept at it. So yeah. I can see yeah. the struggle of trying to wrap your brain around, you know, when I dash, how far do I go? What can I reach? What height am I going to get to? It's all these sort of new things that you don't typically have to think about. That was probably one of my biggest problems is that the the potions, ex- I don't think they're potions, they're described eloquently in the manual, but they extend your dashing to different degrees, and so it was hard to keep track of those. So I would either yeah. overshoot or undershoot or pause myself mid-dash and die, and it, it just, sometimes it felt hit or miss, other times I felt very much in the zone and everything just flowed, so I, I don't know mm-hmm. what was going on. It, it was probably just me, but... <laughs> You know, it's a different mechanic, I guess, is what I'm what I'm getting at. Yes, we can agree on that. Well, what else did you like or kind of dislike? Uh, I very much like the palette of the game. I think graphically Gorgeous. it is a pretty game. Um, the graphics are very well done. I think the overall feel of the game is consistent from beginning to end. And I think some games struggle with that and struggle with the background sort of meshing the sprites and everything kind of feeling like a cohesive unit. I feel like this game visually is very, very pretty. Uh, as much as I will agree with that, because um, it is just one of the best looking NES games, period. There were several background objects where I couldn't tell what was the background and what was the foreground. Like, you know, in mm-hmm. the platformer, especially black, black, yeah black background platformers like there's a lot of like decor back there that you can't actually interact with whereas some of the things in this i would end up hitting you know a few times and it would lead to cheap deaths but you learn what what is and is not the background at a certain point but the initial like jerk knee-jerk reaction was oh why did i just die on those pillars that should have been back there not forward here Right, and I think I think I agree that games that do that piss me off, but I feel like a game that is of this length, it is, it's short enough to where you can learn that and get back to it pretty quick. I mean, it's the same thing where you're playing it multiple times, not just to get through a level, but you're going to come back to it many times because it's fun, and you're going to, you know, kind of learn what's there. But yeah, the initial reaction is always kind of like, oh, why? I was doing so well this time. My biggest con, interestingly enough, is part of my pro. Like, I feel like the dash mechanic, as 
much as I enjoyed the unique aspect of it, I feel like I couldn't quite, I couldn't consistently master it. Um, mm. It didn't feel like so the controls. Yeah, the like when you are say a single block, like on the right hand side of it, and then you tap left. It seemed like sometimes he would just turn the other direction, and you could then like you know readjust and and jump where you need to. And other times he would just kind of run off the side. And I don't know if that's me or if it's the control. I I don't know. There's something about it that just didn't quite seem consistent. Um, and it, it didn't happen enough to overshadow my enjoyment of the game. But I think it prevented me from getting really really good at it because i never actually beat the yeah i i had a few moments where i got too obsessed with trying to master the jump thing and it was just like death after death after death after death or not jumping but dash thing and it was yeah. because of that type of stuff uh which i will chalk that down to me not being able to master it uh the one big con that i had was that the game allows you to leap over walls like in Super Mario Brothers 1. Man, I've come back to that more times than <laughs> any other time recently. But it allows you to like jump over things like you can do in the uh, World 1-2. But if you get to the end of the level, you can't actually get like down to finish the level. You're, you're just trapped and you have to wait. You're trapped, right? Yeah. <laughs> did you do that too? Uh, I did not. Uh, but a couple of the reviews I uh, watched did mention that. I was so, and I guess it wouldn't have been such a big deal, but I was so excited. I was like, I found a secret. I'm going to go get things. And then it was like, oh, I just have to sit here for like 90 <laughs> seconds. Oh. You found your death. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have got all those diamonds, which I will say, let me jump back to the pros of the gameplay was the, um, your timer like ticks down, but it's based on the number of diamonds you collect. So this is one of the very few games where, the things you collect like actually help you in like a non-point way. Your right. time is the diamonds. So to me, that was like, oh, I got to get a bunch of diamonds like right now. Uh, kind of like Sonic with the life, except much more important and less garbage. Right. You find a treasure chest with 20 diamonds in it and you're like super chest. soaked. Absolutely. <laughs> that was another great thing about the gameplay was that just like, Golly, SMB won five times in an episode? Um, I mean, it's a classic for a reason. Well, I still don't like it, but there <laughs> there were secrets everywhere. Uh, kind of like what we saw in Raleigh. Well, okay, I've seen not many. <laughs> Show off. Yeah, it's, I just, I forget. Um, but there, there are secrets where, both where you think they should be, like, oh, there's that point where I could reach if I really wanted, but why would I be rewarded for that? Oh, secret. Or just <laughs> like you're going along, you're like, I'm just going to go this other way, and then boom, secret. And it, it's there were lots of extra lives. There were lots of the uh, dash potions. And it was just, I enjoyed that aspect. Everything was packed into it, uh, like an NROM game, like SMB1 or something like that. Um, <laughs> but what's cool is the secrets weren't everywhere. Like, like, I guess DuckTales immediately comes to mind where, like, there's oh, so yeah. many hidden things that it, like, the the excitement wears off. It's like, oh, look, another hidden thing every time I take a step. Like, every time you find a secret in this game, it feels good. It does. Uh, Chris really created just 
A great game. Should we have him on here? You know, we usually wait to have somebody on until, you know, after we fully talked about it, but should we just have him on now? Let's mix it up, man. Bring him in. Well, due to my crappy internet connection, we kind of got to take what we can get. So, <laughs> Chris, are you there? <laughs> hey, guys. Whoa, hey, there he is. How did that happen? Magic. I know. Just like, ma- yes, magic. Um, Whoa, whoa. Welcome back. This is your second time that we've had you on, and this time it's all about you. I I love to say that. (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) Or nervous, one of the two. (laughs) (laughs) I you're you're kind of unknown in the community. Everybody knows you've done this game, but you're not really on the forums as much. Uh, you know, you contribute in a positive way, of course, but you're not there, you know, hashing it out and fighting with people like all that. Um so tell us a bit about yourself, uh, where you come from, what your background is, how you got into NES, NES development, and whatever else you feel like. Okay. Um, well, I'm a software engineer by trade, and uh, I got into NES Brew, or NES Dev and Homebrew probably like around 2006, 2007, um, when I was a computer science student. Like there's this affliction or disease or compulsion, I think, for all computer science students to try to build an emulator at some point <laughs> and that happened to me too so that's how i discovered nestev and then when i was there i learned oh people make new games this is great um but i just i didn't contribute i think for six or seven years or whatever until the nestev compo so i would just wow. occasionally read articles yeah so did you finish an emulator no <laughs> oh, okay just curious I've got like my incomplete, like my progress is on GitHub somewhere, but yeah, I never got that far. I didn't know any of that, Uh, you know, because when I met you, you were just this guy who did really great art that could almost work on the NES if one tried. And I knew you had like, you could program and stuff, but I didn't realize that you'd been around for quite that long. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of lurking. Um, but uh, and the art came later too. It was I had been doing a number of Ludum Dare competitions, and they just like my entry sucked. <laughs> so I knew I needed to get better at art. I knew I needed to learn how to make funner games. I needed to improve everything. So <laughs> your art is just so so amazing. And so with Nebs and Debs, you were originally doing all the art, correct? Yes. Yes, uh, I did uh, the sprites and the backgrounds until we brought Anders on. And then uh, we kept some of the sprites I did, but by and large, Anders did most of our pixel art. What was that like? Uh, Was it kind of hard to see something that you could do go in a different direction? Did you have some say in what was happening? Or kind of what's that whole process been like? I don't remember it being hard. I feel like Anders was on the same page with what uh, we wanted to do. Um, And I was truthfully just busy trying to get all these other things working, all these other balls in the air. Um, So I don't know if I had enough time to worry about it. I probably would have if I had more time. Really has continued your work too, because you you did the Spookatron art and then you and I did some RPG stuff for a while. And when I look at the RPG art you did and what's in Nebs and Debs, it almost looks like continuous between the two uh, in terms of your color choices, the way that you were drawing things. 
Like you found the perfect guy. It just, it's great. It, it did work out re- really well. Um, I'm yeah, still amazed he, he came on to the project because he's worked on some uh, amazing games. I recently bought a game he did the pixel art for called Sparklight. I don't know if you guys Ooh, are familiar with that He did that? that? Yeah, he, he did pixel art for that game. Yeah. I just bought that. I'm so excited to play it. Wow. Huh. So, I, I mean, I must have been living right or karma from a past life. I don't know. You hit the jackpot. <laughs> exactly. So when you set out to initially make what eventually turned into Nebs and Debs, did you have a clear idea of like the type of game you wanted to make? Like, is the end result close to what your initial idea was? Mm. So, so I knew, so I had a couple of goals with Nebs and Debs. The first one was I wanted to make an Enron game, but I wanted it to seem like it was a, a game made later during the license period, like a, a Capcom game like DuckTales or Rescue Rangers, right? something like that. So I wanted to do that. And then I also wanted it to feel fast-paced and combo-y. Like I wanted you to chain enemy kills and, and do cool uh, dashes across expanses and just everything be bang, bang, bang. Um, so those were my two goals. And I, th- I think I succeeded in both those goals. Um, but there were a lot of mechanic tweaks from the demo version, from the first versions, to what we to what we ended up with. A lot of little tweaks with the way Deb's handles and the dash handles and stuff like that. But the dash concept was there from the start. Yes, yes, I knew. Or early on, I can't remember why I settled on. I I want this to be the primary mechanic, and then everything else kind of revolved around that. So I had I had this pixel piece i did for my daughter uh it was the alphabet with kids with animals on their heads and i i knew i was going to pick one of those to be the protagonist in this game so i had to figure out like what animal would get a dash <laughs> none of them <laughs> so i said along that actually uh nebs was originally a squid so it was the squid kid uh but I think the original piece was 32 pixels tall to get the squid in there with all its legs and, I don't know, the anatomy of a squid, but, you know, it's a weird <laughs> head thing. Uh, but then when I had to bring it down for Nebs and Debs, uh, the max I wanted to go was 24 pixels tall, and it just didn't look like a squid, so I pixeled and repixeled, and eventually the squid turned into an octopus thing. And I said, fine, Nebs, you're, you're an octopus now. Congratulations. <laughs> Evolution. Yeah. Um, so, wow, I didn't, man, we're learning so much today. I love this. Um, so as you posted publicly on the net, on Nestev and the forums and you sort of got some feedback as you worked on the game, because you were posting about it prior to your, you know, actual submission, how much impact did the comments and criticism play on development itself, if, if at all? It was mainly motivational. So posting on social media and on the forums and getting feedback was mainly like it kept me motivated. I knew people were had their eyes on me, or I hope they did. So it made me continue to work on it. Um, as far as like feedback into like mechanics and how the game played and felt, I don't know if that feedback mattered so much. But you know, the play testers I worried about, and my own personal vision, of course, I worried about. Animated gifts were just amazing too. I will say. Oh, thank you. I, you I were the first person I saw doing that. 
consistently, and it, it definitely inspired me to go oh, down good. that road. Yeah. It's if you want to be accessible and to communicate to people, that's definitely the way to do it. So I've seen speedrunners speed on YouTube uh, use the sort of top of the screen bypass that Bo was talking about to sort of get past different parts of different levels. Was this something that you intentionally put in the game or is this a byproduct of great players just finding ways to further beat great games? So some of them I knew uh about the bypass and other ones i didn't so i heard you guys talking the one where you can't get back down and complete the level i did not (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i wouldn't be that big of a jerk (laughs) i promise well that's good to know about you on a personal level okay (laughs) good so this you had this is this is a weird question like because this is something that we haven't dealt with before um but you i think are the first and only like homebrew release that was fulfilled by amazon of all things <laughs> yeah kind of a major company can you tell us about that uh how that worked why you went with that and how your experience was well i wouldn't do it again <laughs> well never mind um, <laughs> well i i I'll, I'll back up so uh, I, I wanted it to be as painless as possible because I, I still work a day job. I have two kids now. I don't have a lot of time. Congratulations. And, yeah, thank you. Uh, so I thought having Amazon fulfill uh, the U.S. orders would be the fastest, quickest way to get the game out. And it was. It's actually super easy. You know, you pack up a couple boxes, send it to Amazon. Um, you upload uh, a CSV data file. And then before you know it, everybody in the U.S. has their copy of Nebs and Debs. Uh, the problems lie in they don't use very good packaging. So I think there was a total of maybe three or four damaged mm. cartridges in the U.S. And I think maybe I only got one internationally, and it was because of the carrier. Or, or I think maybe it was in Germany. Um, so it, it was fast. It was pretty easy. But they used bubble mailers, and I wasn't happy with the way they treated the product. So always fun when they ship you know a 12 by 12 by 12 box with one game in it and no packaging (laughs) (laughs) i love when they do that uh so you know nebs and debs is out it's been out for a while a couple years now you you had one of those very fast kickstarters where you fulfilled it immediately to make people wait two or three years sorry about that and uh so what's kind of next for doulahan soft which is one of my favorite things which the the doulahan is the you'll tell us the headless horseman yeah <laughs> i like him he's good people uh, without the head of course but doulahan soft um so what's next well we've got a couple of projects uh in the works uh the biggest and the one that i i tweet about occasionally uh is codenamed janice haven't settled on the the final name yet uh, and this is going to be an action-adventure RPG, a Zelda-like. And I guess the the cool technical thing about this is it's going to be released on the uh, VRC6 uh, mapper. Interesting. Kind of, yeah. To my knowledge, well, I know there was, there's been a VRC6 music cart, right? Yeah. You guys would know. Maybe. I believe so. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, sure, if you say there has been, yeah, but you're going to be the first game. <laughs> yeah, this this should hopefully be the first game. Uh, yeah, so so for those of you, your audience who don't know, although they probably all do, they're all very well informed. 
um, homebrew followers. Uh, wonderful animated gifts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the VRC6 was a Konami-developed uh, uh, mapper. Uh, I think it appeared on three games, and it was Famicom only because one of the perks of this uh, mapper, this cartridge hardware, is that it adds three extra sound channels, two pulse waves and a saw. Um, and the uh, North American NES can't handle it. Um, so when Konami uh, ported, I think the only one of the games came to the States, and that was what Castlevania 3 for us. When uh, they ported Castlevania 3 from the Famicom to the NES, they had to change the cartridge hardware from BRC6 to MMC3 or 5 or something like that. Um, so you may be wondering, how the hell are we going to do this if Konami couldn't do it? How is Stallone Software going to do it? Um, but uh, uh, Infinite NES Lives has developed a, an expansion module that you'll be able to use with your front-loading NES to play these extra sound channels. Uh, that the that expansion channels. module, yes. Um, it'll only, unfortunately, work for the front-loader. Uh, Top-loader, lo you can't install this module. And then I think the AVS handles it natively in other uh, clone systems. Yep, yep. Very exciting. So the reception of the game, uh, obviously, it seemed to be very, very good. I know sometimes people jump into future projects and then maybe come back and do a sort of iteration on a previous game. Do you have any future elaborate ideas for Nebs and Debs? Do you have a sequel in mind or an offshoot, anything like that? So I don't have a sequel in mind right now. If I did a sequel, I don't know if it'd be on the NES. It, it might be my first SNES homebrew. Ooh, we heard it here first, folks. <laughs> uh, I do have... Uh, maybe a puzzle game idea that would take place in the Nebs and Debs universe, but I mean, I don't want to get anybody's hopes up. Feels like a Sly Dog Studios type thing, bringing different uh, genres into the same universe. See a dungeon crawler in the future? Mm, don't tease. <laughs> don't yeah. tease. So I do have to ask, with the conclusion of Nebs and Debs, and you, now you're jumping all the way to the VRC6, like, is the fascination with building an Enrom game done and over with? No, I'll probably do another one. Oh, you're sick. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, there were some things, like, you, you'd run up this shark boss that you could reuse that was very tile efficient and all that, but then it didn't make the cut due to memory or perhaps other reasons. But, like, I just didn't know. A lot of people are done with Enrom once they've done, done one. So, okay. Well, my, my hope is, so with Janice, uh, the new engine I'm building for that, I'm hoping I'll be able to use for the next couple Dolan software games uh, that aren't just action-adventure RPGs. So they could potentially run on Enrom as well. Now we have to, of course, ask you the questions that we ask all of our great guests that come on the show. You've been in the scene since, what, you said 06 or 07, so you had to have at least seen a lot of homebrews that have come out over the years. Do you have a favorite NES homebrew of all time? Yes. I Well, Battle Kid 2 was the first I bought, so I'd probably have to pick that. All right. Uh, that's all the time we have, so thanks for yeah, coming yeah. on. Jeez. <laughs> what <about> this guy <laughs> on? <laughs> so what's your, what's your general impression of the future of NES homebrew? Do you see good things? Do you see bad things? What do, what do you think's coming? Uh, I'm very excited about uh, the current state of NES homebrew. It's it's super, you know, it's very motivating seeing all these good games out. 
because I'm very competitive. And I, I mean, I want Delahunt Software to like to be making some of the best NES games. So um, it just it just uh, compels me to keep making games and making them better. I think you're, I think on you're that yeah, you're definitely on the right track. That's... Thanks, guys. You got you switched up your questions, Kevin. Yep, I'm good. Well, I. I guess in closing, if we could just get you to read us bedtime stories with a soothing voice, we'd be all set. You know, I used to be a uh, freeform radio DJ. Mm. Okay, all right. Y- your kids must sleep like babies, because they are. Oh, so. uh, they don't. They don't oh. at all. <laughs> I'm sleep deprived right now. Maybe you have to come through a speaker in order to be to work. Maybe you should record yourself and then play it for Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, and then plus you won't have to be there if they don't fall. Kevin's going to be the greatest dad ever. No. <laughs> Chris, it's good to find out a little bit more about you. Um, I think in the words of uh, Edward Norton, I met you at a very strange time in your life. Um, <laughs> but like, I had no clue about all this previous past with programming and um, just sort of been lurking. Emulator stuff. I mean, he's always a lurker. We know that. Most people are lurkers. <laughs> uh, I just thought you were really good at art and didn't really realize. And then suddenly you like had a game done before I was even done with Spookatron. And I was like, crap, what is, who is this guy? Uh, and so it's just it's been fun watching you find your place in the community and uh, throw down your roots. And I'm excited to see what you're doing next. Thank you. I have one question before you take off. What music track shall we play from your wonderful game? Oh, can you tell us anything about the music? I mean, why should Kevin and I talk about the music when you can just do that for us since you're here? <laughs> sure. Um, so I, you've had Cooler on before and yep. chatted with him. Um, and so, let's see. So uh, when I was doing Nebs and Debs, I knew I couldn't do music. Um, so I actually messaged Julius from Morphcat Games said hey do you know any musicians that would make music for an enrom game uh cooler was on the list contacted him he, he did the music um i continually pulled a rug out from under him and tell him he had less and less space <laughs> and he was a trooper every time and he kept making excellent tracks um gosh that's about that's about it uh, very loose specifications but he made excellent music yeah it was amazing specific track uh, I think the cave, the underground theme, level two. Well, let's rock that right now. Let's take a listen. Thanks for coming on, Chris. Thank you, guys.
That was the cave track by Q-Lore. Q-Q-Lore? Q-Lore. Q-Lore. Well, one of those. Um, <laughs> which I will say, I, I'd kind of forgotten that he'd done the music for this. And so when I fired it up, I was like, man, this sounds really familiar. This sounds like Pimp My Cruise Mobile or whatever he had called that one. <laughs> Forgot all about that. Yeah, I thought you did. <laughs> I forget the full title, but it was something kind of humorous. Uh, we so talked to him when we uh, looked over Alter Ego, which was the great game by Shiru. But yeah, Kulo did the music. Weird, though, that Shiru, who does music, had somebody else do the music, while Chris, who can do art, had somebody else do the art. I love, I love the crossover that happens in the homebrew community. It's funny. People want to sort of stretch their legs in different directions at different times, and sometimes it's fun to just focus on one aspect hand another one off kind of makes me wish i could do something like art or music but anyways <laughs> kevin but what in the end you know at this point in the you know i think this is a game that we'll probably both come back to and play as the years go on it is very solid but what stands out to you in terms of memorable levels locations and whatnot well i think all like I was saying during the graphics discussion, the game has a very consistent look, but I think my favorite area is probably the forest. I think that it's really kind of the way that it's designed. I mean, even in the manual, it says the forest canopy blocks up most of the light. Like the palettes that are used in that series of levels, they kind of have a dark, bluey, I don't know, I just think it looks very good. Um, and I really like the, the level layouts in those levels. So it's probably my most fun part of the game. I didn't get past it, so who knows if the Swampa is super... <laughs> it's better, but yeah, I really like the forest. On sea color, that to me is like the perfect blue. Yeah, it is. is. You're right. I love uh, it. I learned that from Chris, too, when he was doing stuff for me. It was just like, yes, I need to use this color everywhere. <laughs> Even if it doesn't show up on a front loader on a CRT, whatever, it's still very good. You're like bringing that color to Home Depot to get them to match it to paint walls. Do you think the wife would know if I did that? <laughs> that might be happening. Uh, why is this room this very specific shade? No reason. Don't ask. It's not RGB. <laughs> one C, Elise. One C. Yeah. I think for me, it's not any individual level that stands out so much. I mean, I, the colors in all of them were just great. The graphics were great. They had nice atmosphere and music and all that. It was the the secrets in every level is what really stood out to me. Uh, that's going to be why I come back and why I want to keep and all that stuff. And to kind of know that probably uh, not. I. Th I suspect that Chris puts stuff in there that is very hard to find, and that yeah. for years' time, I may still not have found everything. And so I'm kind of excited uh, to continue my Nebs and Debs quest. <laughs> was it fun? Uh, I thought it was very fun, but very difficult. I would, if I had to choose... And I hate throwing Battle Kid under the bus. No, I don't. Every chance I get. But if I had to choose between Battle Kid and this, I would pick this every time because I feel like this is something I can get good at 
Um, so I do have a lot of fun playing it, and I will definitely be coming back to it uh, as things go on. What about you? Oh, see, that's that's where we we differentiate a little bit. Um, I like Battle Kid because it's the larger epic quest, uh, and I although I do feel like the mastery is more inherent in. It is really hard. Uh, as I've as I've stated before, we always try to try to beat the games on the podcast, but this one just stopped me. And we always we do rag on Battle Kid a lot, but it's because it's the game. It's the game we love to hate. It's the game that we thought would be something else. Like you look at it, you want to play it, you want to be great at it, and it just slams you down and lets you get past you know boss three or four. <laughs> is that the color mancer? I might. Nebs and Debs is kind of the same way, where it's like it's a game I really want to love, but is really hard, but yet is in some ways it gives me hope, unlike Mr. BK, uh, Burger the King. But okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I joked I, with Chris. Oh, go ahead. I feel like in this game, when you die, you know that if you come again, you will have a better chance of getting through it. Where I feel like a lot of times in Battle Kid, I feel like a lot of it's up to luck, and maybe that's my lack of skill. Um, but lack of I skill know. too, then. Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard a bunch of people on the Twitter and stuff complaining about how hard it was, and I joked with Chris publicly, like, hey, is this going to be my new Battle Kid? And he said, I'd be honored if it was your new Battle Kid. <laughs> I, I can't quite say. I think I, we might need to go back and replay Battle Kid and sort of see. Uh, it's funny, though, that one of his favorite NES homebrews is Battle Kid 2. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he took notes. He I learned. Mean, they're, they're good games. You can't sort of dispute that. Just not good, uh, but I still I hate them. I hate them because I want to love them so much. That's that for me, anyways. That's why they don't. With both of them, all three of them, all four, if you include the re-release of Battle Kid, I'm back and I play them and I try to get better, and it's like a sick addict here. I feel like you are the one to go to when discussing the various ways a game was released. So can you describe <laughs> the different formats that this game came out in? Action 53, Volume 29, Function 6, Segment 7... Had that would be 2016 or volume three, had the uh sort of prequel version of Nebs and Debs, sort of the testing the waters, seeing what people think, almost demolishing a competition, but not quite, almost, almost, and then <laughs> doing the Kickstarter shortly after, which actually Twin Dragons did the Kickstarter shortly after as well. So it was, it was good to see both of them kind of not take too long after the competition. But yeah, if you want to just play that version, you can download the ROM for free, of course. Or you can get it on cart. Um, very nice box by me, who has done most of those uh, uh, Action 53 boxes. So there was that, and then he went on to do the Kickstarter, and there was a demo you could download, but uh, you know, the Kickstarter was for a physical release and everything, and he had almost 26k, but more importantly, as I will always say, it's almost 500 backers, which is that's, a That's lot. so many people. So yeah. many people. It is. And you could pledge at small levels like uh, 
digital copy. And he was one of the first people that did sort of the ROM and didn't worry about the pirating of the ROM. And then he has still continued to offer the game for sale on his website, which is shop.doulahandsoft. A bunch of other things. You can <laughs> just probably Google it and get there quicker than typing in what I tell you. He's recently partnered with uh, Broke Studio, or they've recently partnered with Broke Studios for extra US shipping. Uh, anything beyond the US, which I'd be curious to know if that means. Europe shipping to Canada is cheaper than the U.S. shipping to Canada because, wow. <laughs> but yeah, if you're interested in playing it, there are plenty of ways. Kevin, what's been going on with you lately? Now that we've talked about Nebs and Debs, what about you? Oh, man. Uh, I guess this covers a lot of months since it's been a little while since the last episode, but... Oh, only like October. Yeah, no, not too long. You've announced eight projects and you're going to finish one. No, I might finish one. I don't know. Well, I'm I started kidding. working on porting the original King's Quest to the NES. So I was posting People some... People were stoked about. Yeah, and I am too. Um, you know, I was doing some graphics. There's just so many screens on that game. So graphic-wise, that's the most sort of intensive part of the game, just so kind of like Larry was. Any point-and-click game, you're going to have the environment drawings that are going to you know, comp or comprise the majority of the work that goes into it. So if you are interested in helping Kevin do King's Quest screens, Brad Bateman, please write in to the assembly line. Yes, nesassemblyline at gmail.com. In the subject line, write, Kevin, I am here to save you. And then you can pretty much put anything in the body of the email. Uh, but anyway... I was working on that, making some good progress, but then I was contacted by some people who I cannot really reveal, um, but they had sort of a proposition for me, and I have uh, since then been hired to program a game for a television show, which is surreal and mind-blowing. Uh, Mostly because I'm a huge fan of the show, so it's sort of, I don't know, it's really awesome uh, working for people who I've uh, watched on TV so much, so can't... Like, uh, I like Spongebob, too. <laughs> I wish I could divulge what it is and who these people are, but I had to sign some non-disclosure agreements, so can't even tell my mom. Are you not breaking them by talking about it in this way? I have revealed nothing, Bo. Nothing. Oh, sure. It is on TV. The way you set up that story sounded a lot like you sent some money to an Iranian relative somewhere. <laughs> like, I was contacted by some people. I can't tell you about yeah. it. But I think I might already be a winner. Well, they did send me a check. So oh. the, money, the money does exist. All right. Uh, and the project is probably Once about 60 or 70% done, so it's getting close. Um, they gave me a three-month deadline, which is ridiculous to finish Best. an NES game, uh, and we are now halfway through with that deadline, so I'm more than 50% done with the game, so it's, it's coming along well. Uh, but it's totally unlike anything I've done before. Um, it is a platformer, which is 
sort of exciting uh, and terrifying because it's stuff I've never sort of tackled programming wise, but getting through it. And uh, I can't wait to show you all what it is. Hopefully, uh, I know that it's going to be on an episode of this show at some point in the future. So I when really I didn't think Spielberg would want you to do ET two, well, he saw the quality of work I had with the ET port that I did. Uh, he he bought Larry, and he was super excited to mail in that form. When I saw an order form come through for Steven Spielberg, uh, I knew I had made it. So. Here I am, raking in the dough, making a sequel to E.T. I'll have our moment. Very yep. excited to be able to see what you are mysteriously working. I love, I love the mystery that surrounds Kevin Hanley. <laughs> well, it's pretty cool. Wears his emotions on his shoulder, but there's a lot there that you don't know is going on. Yep. Uh, and on top of that, uh, I'm supposed to be working on the 2020 calendar. Uh, 2020 has already begun, so I am behind the eight ball here. Is that a saying? Uh, we all get half off now. Uh, yes, you will only get six months worth of calendar. Oh, no, that's not the half <laughs> off. <laughs> but uh, I think you meant behind the candelabra. <laughs> no, Kev bots behind on ca- candelabra. Um, oh, but, yeah, I went there. Uh, but yeah, I'm gonna get the calendars on ASAP. It, they'll be on sale. Uh, on Twitter or wherever I sell them. So keep an eye out. But that is all on my end. A lot of my free times devoted to my love life, which I would love to talk about for two hours, but let's not get into that. Cause this is a podcast about games. Uh, if you do, if you're curious, you can always check his Twitter. There's some revealing pictures, <laughs> but what have you been up to Bo? Tell me everything. Uh, So we talked last time, or I talked last time, kind of about the uh, 6502 Collective, which is that fun cooperative that I'm in with um, the Retrotainment fellows, and we're kind of, we're doing stuff with that, uh, as was the plan. We're each doing our own stuff, of course. They're they're finishing full quiet, start some other stuff. I've got some stuff we'll get to in a sec. But for the Collective, we, so... Uh, Optimon, famous for Pyronaut, he did Raleigh, uh, which was on Kickstarter a few months ago, and it was a nice side-scrolling platformer with a nice bouncing mechanic, very much like Mario 1. We teamed up with him to kind of help get that out, and I think the last or second-to-last piece, not material, thing, thing we need on the collective (laughs) side to put that into, you know, contact the printers, get things moving, get the game completely finished uh, has been submitted. And yeah, so Raleigh will be coming out under kind of that label, that effort. Um, The manual looks amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Chris posted some pictures on Twitter, which is awesome. Uh, He's he's Mm -hmm. a quiet fella. So I, it's always, there's lots going on. He just doesn't always show a lot. So it's, it's nice to see when it's out there. And so with Raleigh, that was a situation where the collective helped somebody who had a game release it. Like they just, they didn't want to deal with all the manufacturing. On the other side, uh, the collective also kind of, at times, I, uh, Tim will probably kill me for saying this, but there are times when it, 
a, a developer doesn't want I don't want to say anything to do with the game at that point, but they don't want to deal with anything. They just want to hand it off and have somebody else take care of anything from marketing. Cause like crystal did marketing with Raleigh. He ran his own Kickstarter, that type of thing. So there are times where people don't want to deal with anything. They just want to get back to making games, which if I could find that person, uh, <laughs> I'd take it. No kidding. It is so stressful having to do everything. Like, do the marketing, stress about sales, get all the stuff printed. Like, there's so much that probably the average consumer doesn't really realize has to go into creating these physical products. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass, for sure. As a dev, you think, you know, I made the game, that's it. But really, making the game is like, I don't want to say 50% of the work, but 60% would probably be more accurate where, and then even still, if it doesn't sell because you haven't put the time into that other 40%, like you're left with pretty much nothing, just a lot of not wasted effort, but effort that's not realized in its fullest. So all that to say, um, the collective will occasionally buy out projects that uh, folks don't want to do that stuff with, which is something I did with, you know, Soul Goose Productions. I developed, we had five games, Swords and Runes, that whole series, Zero Dax, Zen, those were all ones that were, you know, actually those are paid for by Soul Goose. So uh, <laughs> I guess I funded those. It wasn't like, no, the first Swords and Runes was a good example. That was one where somebody came to me and said, hey, find me a publisher. And I was like, well, tell you what, I'll be that publisher. And that's how we sort of got started, which is a whole different story. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I guess that's sort of a um, story we need to return to one of these days. We should have a fireside chats with, with the goose um, where I smoke my bubble pipe and uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks style. So uh, I got to talking with Gradual Games a while back, and they kind of wanted to find somebody to take over both their back catalog and their new release trophy, which is, as we know, a... I don't know if we know, but I know it's a side-scrolling platformer with shooting and that's it's a kind of like Mega Man. Uh, some people call it a Mega Man clone, which is not fair justice to either, I think. But the collective is slated to release trophy very soon. We're just kind of waiting for the right time and maybe cleaning up one or two little things that like to do for you know to, to to make it appeal to people a little better but it's it's a phenomenal game and it's one that i i, I tested I, I met with derek and Lori and like played it in front of them gave them feedback i was then later a tester and just blown away like i mean he did alley he did nominalist but trophy is this is like the coming of age moment this is this is adulthood damn i really need to play this you're the the words that you used to describe it, it, it sounds really enticing. It sounds like uh, Catcher in the Rye or Gatsby or something? Gatsby. Don't oh, ever compare okay. it to Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye is creepy. I've never read Catcher in the Rye, but I hear it's like a coming-of-age thing. Anyways, um, <laughs> the point being, like in, in my own mind, it's probably one of the top five homebrew games made, period. Ah, you'll just have to sort of... I mean, Derek posted some stuff on Twitter when he was still still posting active development of it, but it, it's been done for probably six months, and 
is coming when it will be out so please keep an eye out for that on kickstarter it'll be on my twitter it'll be on derek's twitter or gradual games twitter and hey, will it be on your twitter i will retweet you oh look at that what a gentleman <laughs> can't wait i mean it, it's just phenomenal and it, it's a beautiful game to look at uh, you can really see where laurie grew as an artist and and all that Oh, and the biggest bosses of any NES platformer. like Oh, I down. remember you saying that. That's really exciting. In licensed era, bosses look tiny by comparison. Wow. Okay. So, anyways, that's, that's another direction the, the collective is headed with that. And then we also do, from time to time... Uh, contract projects like the, six, or the Convention Quest... And then we've also started, this was, this came about um, kind of an interesting way. INL developed a, an expansion audio adapter, which we've mentioned before. And that plugs in and lets, you know, the NES have more sounds, sort of like the Famicom. Or no, exactly like the Famicom. And <laughs> so you plug this adapter in, which is all well and great. Like you'd be able to play. Uh, like the Namcot releases with the weird sound, extra sound. Uh, Lagrange Point would be, you know, heard in its full glory. But it was also realized that you could do things like kind of put CD quality audio through the NES. And Ooh. so we got to, the collective got together with, with Memlers, uh, Mr. Parcel there. And he developed a board, which is it's GT ROM, which is what I've used for all my stuff and Kevin uses for most of his. But it has an MP3 thingy on the doohickey because <laughs> I'm not a hardware guy. It, it's got MP3 <laughs> capabilities. You, you plug an SD card into it and you can then uh, play audio. But, you know, so Joe built the board. INL had the adapter. And then Tim from the collective here, he contacted, he, or he was, yeah, he got in contact with a band called Zayo, which I'd never heard of, but I was like, okay, cool, whatever. Um, well, it's crazy to me because I was a huge fan of Zayo going back to like 1998, 1999. Like, I saw these guys play live a few times. I was very into their first four albums, but I haven't really thought about them for like 15 years. So when the announcement was made that they that you guys were releasing an NES cartridge of the band Zayo, it was like these weird different portions of my life, completely unrelated, like combining. It, it was really it was a bizarre sort of surreal experience because. That's a whole lifetime ago, but here it is now on NES cartridge that my friends are putting out. It was so weird. Well, the surreal part on my side was the fact that until it was publicly announced and you guys started saying, oh, man, I love Zayo. I was like, people know who they are. Like, <laughs> I couldn't oh, yeah. tell you. And in so, the, yeah, in the Christian hardcore scene, they were as good as it got. Well, they're they're not a Christian band anymore. They've they've right kind of severed ties with that, and they've had you know a lot of member turnover. But they've been around in one form or another for like twenty five something years, or 
Yeah, Some, a long time. Yeah, a long time. I finally went to the Wikipedia page after all you guys started saying that. I was like, oh, man, this is like a real band. Uh, good job, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> and cartridges for that. So, like, th- now I'm, I'm just going to state this again because a lot of people don't get it. And I didn't get it until I actually had programmed it and, like, popped it in the NES. But you will hear CD-quality audio coming out of your NES. And it's it's mono, not stereo. But it's just like, oh, my goodness. This is so cool. Yeah. And you might be asking, you know, if you were testing it and programming it, how did you not actually know who they were? Well, I didn't actually have to have their music on the uh, SD card. So I had a bunch of other bands that were much more mellow. (laughs) And so, like, I'd play their number two and it'd be like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) pretty much. Like, Song two would be like death to all and this and that. And I'm just listening to Bob Dylan. I'm like, okay, yeah, it works. <laughs> Good stuff. And yeah, so we released that and it went very well. Like they sold out within, I think, 30 seconds. Uh, the band was happy. We were happy. And that's something we actually have. I can't really say much more. Actually, by the time this is out, you should check Kickstarter for NES MP3 album and you will probably find one. So, hmm. Good press what? for them. Yeah, that's happening. Sorry, I haven't mentioned it because I haven't been allowed to say. Okay. Well, I not, will not, not tell you what my project is then. Oh, it's not Skillet, I'll tell you that. <laughs> is it uh, Creed? Oh, it's not Creed. Uh, oh, man, that'd be, that'd be fun. <laughs> At least my wife would absolutely hate if I did a Creed album, but I'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> so with their 12 fans but with that you know we've been kind of busy with the, the collective side but as last time I do have to say SGP itself continues on with the game Cities N and Ooh, I hear it's better than SimCity you know what I, I publicly stated that and I didn't say it is better I said it looks better oh okay because yeah. I finally went to go fire up SimCity on the NES, the uh, prototype ROM that's been leaked, and I was like, this looks terrible. Like straight garbage. It, it's not bad. It's got a lot like going on, but compared to City Zen with its nice crisp graphics and like you can see everything and it's it's just well done. And so that was on the Kevin's homebrew calendar for last year for December, which <laughs> for me meant I have 12 months to finish this and get it out. And How'd well, that Dece- go? well, December was last month, as we know. And so <laughs> a couple weeks before December, I was like, you know what? I need to I need to finally finish this. And so I sat down and I, I have a little problem. Um, I'll admit where I see something. And I just see some flaws in design that I want to redo. Did we already, did we already talk about this? <laughs> yeah. So I, I started looking at it, and I always knew there were like a few deficiencies because this has been sitting on my hard drive since 2015. <laughs> and the game's solid. Like the design's good, but you may not understand how to play it. And I, I needed to find a way to communicate that with the player. I needed probably better or some music because there was none. And sound effects, needed sound effects, and all that, even just a few additions with one of these 
uh, games done for me by the the fellow who did Swords and Runes and Zero to X. Inevitably, it led to reprogramming the entire game. Holy crap. Yeah, it didn't take that long. I mean, it just took a few days because he wrote in a weird assembler, so I have to convert it to NESASM, and then I have to make sure it works, and then break it apart to work with multiple banks and my own, like, my usual format. Yeah. And then I start adding in things like uh, title screens, splash screens. Um... So has has someone done the music for it? Yeah, so actually I got, um, because Human Thomas has been doing my RPG music, I was just like, hey man, what do you think about maybe doing some music for the City's End game? And <laughs> I asked him for five tracks, and that's what we agreed upon. Of course, he's given me seven or eight now, so. Man, he's good people. I'll tell you what. He is. Ah, I hope he doesn't listen to this, because if so, he's, he's blushing. Um, he does such, he's just so easy to work with. I love it. Yes, it is the greatest. All that to say, I'm terribly... So a bunch of people asked, you know, where's City's End in December? And I was like, it's coming January. And I was thinking I'd do like the Kickstarter 100. But uh, the whole trophy release kind of has taken precedence because it's just such a solid game. It needs to get out. It's a big one. Uh, City's End does, you know... A platformer versus a city simulation you can kind of tell where which one's going to be more appealing to to most um <laughs> most but not all <laughs> i know most but not all uh, as one who doesn't really enjoy platformers all that much uh no i enjoy some but i'm just not good at them i tell you i tell you what you don't enjoy though what's that rpgs I enjoy prpgs platformer rpgs you're correct <laughs> Those don't exist. That's not a thing. So uh, I've done the revisions. I'm still doing a few more. The release will probably follow after Trophy by a few months. I don't know if it will go to things like Kickstarter or if it will just be sort of a quiet release on my website. So, yeah, just I'll post on Twitter and stuff like that. But it's coming out. It's alive. It's actually more alive than it's ever been. And it's very close. Exciting. I like to play it. Oh, and RPG work continues, but you know I've talked too long, so we'll we'll get to that some other day. Oh, is this the one that the title that you won't reveal to me? SLR. Yes. No, no, that project is one of those that I never announced publicly, and has probably died secretly, so no one has to ever ask me about it except you. Anyway, has anything gone on in the community? I think the community's dead. Oh, the death of homebrew. Maybe not homebrew, but the forum that had a lot to do with it getting to where it is today. Yeah, this was this was some news. I know I know not everybody's on the forums, not everybody pays attention, but in terms of the homebrew community as we know it today, it owes what it is to a forum called Nintendo Age. Yeah. The uh, the birthplace of Nerdy Nights, uh, where many of us learned how to program for this system. Uh, knowing that we now live in a world where this forum no longer exists, it's uh, it's surreal and uh, depressing. Uh, one of the major things in the 
life of homebrew has been cartridge releases. Things physically being released on cartridge sparks has did and has and continues to spark people's interest in owning something and playing. And if they own it, they play it because, you know, they've sunk the money into it. And it's something tangible. It's not just a ROM that's floating out in the in the ether. And so you figure Nestev was around for 10 years before Nintendo Age. And there was one cartridge release during that time. Garage cart? Garage cart, yeah. Which was in like 05, 06. And then Nintendo Age comes along and suddenly you have... Uh, Sudoku with Al Bailey, you have Frogger, you have Battle Kid, you have, you know, Gem Venture, Chunk Out, Glider, more Glider, more, more Glider, Geminim, Siamond, uh, Simulate. What was Sivak's other one? Geminim, Siamond. I think that's it. Uh, no, it's the Columns one. I was thinking Col- Columns? No, no. Mystic Pillars. There we go. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, so like, as much as Nesta was the place where most people got information and, you know, without it, we'd be nothing. Nintendo Age was the place where the collectors were. And suddenly, if you had collectors, you could sell them things and release things on cartridge. Like, releasing things on cartridge isn't cheap. You have to fund that in some way and having people to buy that possible. So Nintendo Age, what, 2007, 2008? Uh, 2007, yeah. Uh, and more games were released through that website than I will ever see again in terms of yeah. one concentrated place. Yeah, it's crazy. We got to see the whole gambit of like physical production come into fruition and you know the birth of the excited homebrew collector and reproduction started making a splash. And people were just buying up everything. We got to see the whole spectrum of like the birth to the hype to the crash to like this whole spectrum of emotions of NES homebrew. To to think that that forum that a lot of us spent so much of our lives like we were there. A lot of us were there over a decade. Like it's just crazy to think that it's gone. It's not just that you we were there. I mean, I was only there six years, so a little less than most, but all day, every day, I was on that site, you know, refreshing, yeah. checking. That was my news for the world. Uh, it wasn't just homebrew, but it was gaming. It was collecting. I don't think I'd have a Switch or be into it if it weren't for that. There was mm-hmm. even, like, a section that had things like politics or just, like, what are you doing? Or, you know... Uh, more important than all that is the, is the friends that a lot of us made. Um, yep. Which, you know, I, I can count most homebrewers that I know through Nintendo Age in some way or another. The events, yeah. the rooms that the site got at these conventions, or... That's how we started talking. This podcast no. wouldn't exist. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, this is what makes it, it kind of hard and kind of sad, is that yeah. uh, as much as it has become so what happened why we call it the death of nintendo age nintendo age is technically still there it was bought by a company who has a vested interest in doing to video games what has happened comics industry with you know it's kind of all about the money and it's things these graded things or whatnot and they 
kind of killed the forums uh, because of that, because, you know, the, their interest is was in the database, which was very, this is all public knowledge. This isn't slander or anything like that. Right. Their knowledge or their interest was in the database. They had really no interest in the forums themselves. And they didn't really make it public, but the forums were shutting down. Like there was going to be a server switch, a lot of data lost, things like that. Uh, which not as much yeah, was, not not as much as was lost as a lot of people feared. Uh, but more was well, lost. Not as much stayed as they sort of alluded to. To you know, they made all these promises that Nintendo Age was not going to go away. You know, it would still be around. They weren't going to make any of these same changes that everyone feared. But when that you know that database change was coming, they they sort of did the old bait and switch. <laughs> yeah, and and there's a couple things there. On the one hand, if you go to the site now, it redirects you to a company's site, and it's like, well, that's that's not why we were here, right? And more so, like they ended up buying and taking what wasn't really theirs, and it it was information built by volunteers for a community on a communal basis, and now that's become a commodity, and that rubbed a lot of people wrong. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, emotions running high where that site was concerned. So a lot of hurt it, feelings. It's, uh, it's just, you know, it, it's been a few months. Most people have calmed down. But uh, what happened out of all that was that pretty much the entire active staff left. They were like, we're done with this. So they started a new website, uh, videogamesage.com. And they kind of shifted a lot of the communal side of things, you know, just goofing off, having a good time talking about games over to that. And it's very much a not-for-profit feel-goodery. Yeah. Run by the community for the community. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I I don't want to say much more. Um, Yeah, me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and one thing I'll say is, um, as far as a lot of the people listening to this podcast is concerned, the the most important sort of uh, historical aspect of Nintendo, which was the Nerdy Night tutorials, um, and they have been saved and backed up um, on a site called NES.Science. So if you need to uh, track down the tutorials, you've went to the Nintendo Age, you can't find them anymore, just go to NES.Science on your browser. Chris has uh, backed them up there. It's actually laid out much nicer than Nintendo Age was, so they read much easier, and the attachments are easier to find. And, uh, he did a very good job, a very good service. History of the forums has not been lost, so uh, that was my biggest concern at the time. Like I was frantically backing up every page I wanted, and <laughs> I didn't, and they just the site was just gone immediately and i knew it was coming but it was just like come on like i was right in the middle of finally finishing this and it just disappeared but it's all still there uh, in one way or another but and it feels (laughs) it feels like a time is gone because you know that's where a lot of us met each other and that's why the nes homebrew scene is unlike uh the homebrew scenes for like the genesis or uh, Atari's got a good one, but you know any other console beyond the twenty six hundred is 
it's loose, it's fragmented, whereas the NES was all of us. It's the people we've featured, it's the people we've talked to, it's the people we still want to get to know that we haven't had a chance to yet. Is all because of the sort of the site that um unsold without our uh, knowledge or whatever. Yeah. Well, I will raise my drink right now to Nintendo Age. Yeah, it's time for one of those. Yep. We miss you. Gave us some good times, gave us some great friends, gave us some amazing memories. And the the positive thing is that it still will. Just because the site's gone doesn't mean the community itself is gone. We'll live on in one form or another. It brought us all together, and these friendships are forever. You're going to play Sarah McLaughlin, aren't you? (laughs) Speaking of... Raising glasses and drinks. Do you remember this thing about 101 years ago called Prohibition? Uh, I do know of this, yes. Yeah, yeah, the whole country decided, hey, we're just going to outlaw booze, which makes no sense. And in the midst of that roaring time of the 1920s was a little man we call Jay Gatsby. Jay Gatsby. Yes. A very mysterious man. Through some parties, had someone move next door named Nick Carraway, and this, the great American novel, The Great Gatsby, was born. Well, as I've probably spoken of numerous times on this podcast, there was a Flash game. Yes. Flash game was created once upon a moon, like a decade ago. Uh, It wasn't just a Flash game. It presented itself as... This was found at a garage sale. This is a real NES game. Yes, that was very clever marketing, I will say. Um, But yeah, you could play this game in the internet browser. Uh, Very sort of small game. It was like four levels, I think. Um, But gameplay was very solid, very fun. Um, Just like a fun little platformer. You get like martini glasses as power-ups, and you throw a little hat to kill butlers. Anyway, a hat, a flying hat, you say? Yes. Uh, I don't know the logistics of how it's programmed clearly, but uh, it happened. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was quite taken by the game because, uh, you know, the book is my favorite book of all time. Um, and seeing a game created, you know, from scenes of the book um, in the NES style, uh, it was just amazing. So. When they presented this game as if it were created for the NES, I thought, well, it should be on the NES. So I took it upon myself to try to uh, program it, you know, reprogram the NES. Uh, The creators of the game, uh, Charlie, um, oh God, I forgot the other guy's name, Josh, maybe? I'm sorry if it's not Josh. Um, They contacted me. They're like, hey, we love what you're doing. You have our full support. Here's the source code. Here's the graphics. You know, whatever you need, let us know. Um, And I was all for it, but, you know, years came and went, and I don't know how to program a freaking hat. Um, But I stalled, got sidetracked with other projects. Anyway, fast forward to 2019. Flash was announced to become obsolete. So that's going to happen later this year, at the end, I think, December of 2020. But Charlie contacted me again, and he's like, hey, I know you're working on this. Um, Flash is going away. 
So we want to see what we need to do to make this game live on. We originally wanted to make it for the NES, couldn't do it because it was too complex, so we changed to Flash, but we want to sort of revisit the idea of us bringing this to the NES. So had a conference call with me, uh, Nathan Tolbert, uh, and then Charlie, and the fourth person who I'm going to call Josh. <laughs> I really hope his name's Josh. So yeah, we talked about uh, how the homebrew community has changed, the new tools available as far as like programming in C, what can be done these days. So Charlie, uh, for the past couple months, has been uh, hacking away at this, and it looks like he's making very good progress. So the Gatsby game that I have dreamed of bringing to the NES for more than half a decade now, uh, looks like it's finally going to happen. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, a hell of a game. It's very fun. Can't wait for you all to uh, try it on the NES. What I loved about it was that, you know, a lot of these, like, faux NES games, they're not faithful to the system. Like, they take some liberties, right. and it's all, it's all for the, generally, it's all for the best. Like, they take some liberties, they don't have the scanline restrictions, they don't have the various other restrictions, we'll say. I'm thinking of Shovel Knight, mostly, uh, because that was <laughs> finally onto the NES, and it's kind of a glitchy mess. But... Uh, they were very faithful. Like when, so your Gatsby code is one of the key things for me learning how to do things. Cause you sent it to me back in 2013 or 2014. And I analyzed it and was like, Oh, this is how you do this. This is how you do that. And all the graphics work. Like it's just been for, for the system. So I, I'm excited that they're finally going to do that. I, I wanted you to finish it. You know that, but yeah, and somebody's going to finish it. Yeah, exactly. The, the only thing that matters is the game is going to get done and it's going to be playable. Um, and the other guy's name is Peter. I'm sorry, Peter, that I forgot your name. But I just searched my email, and the, yep. the date that he sent me the original assets was May 16th, 2013. So, I thought it was 2013. Literally seven years ago is how long I've wanted this to exist on the NES. So, man, I'm so glad that it's happening. Charlie, thank you for tackling this. I am enjoying profusely uh, the trials and tribulations that you're going through in the brewery discord, uh, seeing you sort of overcome the various obstacles uh, that you're encountering. It's a lot of fun. Keep up the good work. But it's coming. Like it's exciting. Yeah, the, the hell yeah. With the laser beam things. Yeah, the bosses are really unique. Uh, the levels are just fun. You know, a lot of it takes stuff right out of the novel. You know, I think the last level on the beach is probably a little departure from reality. But um, overall, really, really cool. The music is amazing. Um, it's just a fun game to sit down and play through. You just feel like. You're a kid playing a really fun Nintendo game that you just rented videos. Which is better than if you were forced to read The Great Gatsby in class. So, uh, that's that. debatable. Oh, I'll debate you on that. I only read The Great Gatsby because you talk so highly about the game. I was like, <laughs> well, I got to read the book. And I was like, this you is hadn't really read it by then? You didn't no, read it at all? I just read it like three years ago. It was very disappointing. So, you didn't have to read it growing up? Uh, oh. My brother did, so there was a copy like in the house. I just went back home and grabbed it. Um, and you did not like it? Oh, not at all. And I watched well, the movie, too. The movie sucked. 
Which movie? With Leo DiCaprio? Yeah, that one. Uh, yeah, that was I watched the Clark Gable one. Like, what, what other one is there? Well, I mean, there aren't any good ones, but the one that came out uh, <laughs> like five years ago was probably not. I, I was overly disappointed because it was my favorite director who did Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. Peter Jackson? No, Baz Luhrmann. Oh, so when never he heard of him. was announced to my favorite director tackling my favorite novel, what could go wrong? Well, everything. Jay Z. Jay Z went. Jay Z? Yes, they had like modern hip hop in oh, the They do. You're yeah, right. it's so dumb. They're like, like spraying champagne on. on each other, and I was like, that's that's not how people drink, but okay. Yeah. <sighs> Speaking of Jay Gatsby, there's another Jay in the world. And he comes with this fellow called Silent Bob. Schnoogans. Yes. Don't know what that means, but you something, Steve, help me? Tell him, Steve, Dave. There it is. Thank you. Um, uh, fun fact for podcast listeners. I've listened to one podcast ever, and that was a tell him, Steve, Dave. Right? <laughs> Yeah, yes. Kevin and I were driving to Jersey during MAGFest because my back hurt so bad, and, well, we were about a week out from surgery, and he made me listen to this podcast, and I was like, oh, so that's what a podcast is, okay. And then, like, a year later, <laughs> he we was, are. <laughs> yeah, and a year later, he was like, you want to make one? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I've never really listened to one, but sure. So, Jay and Silent Bob, they're having, also known as Kevin Smith, they're having a mall brawl, I hear. Yes. Uh, this, uh, mysterious game that was magically announced, uh, is, uh, being programmed by Spoonie Bard Productions? Well, I Tomas? guess it has been. Yeah. Tomas? To- Tomas. It's just, <laughs> is it it's Thomas? just Thomas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was hired to program this game, uh, cause they just released, uh, the Jay and Silent Bob, uh, sequel movie. Um, which is uh, coming out on video next month. Um, but it's yeah, a video? Was, yeah, it's a home video. Uh, VHS. No. Um, but yeah, he was programmed to make this game, and you know, we couldn't talk about it for the longest time. We had him on uh, our podcast last year or the year before. It's been some time, but uh, he alluded to the fact that he may or may not be working on something related to it. So seeing uh, it released, and uh, it's actively being hyped right now on Twitter. Uh, it's really cool. I can't wait to play it. It looks super polished. Which was really funny because he was like, I'm working on this game that I can't talk about. And you were just like, is it a Jay and Silent Bob game? <laughs> he was like, I can't say that. I can't say that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, um, I actively follow Kevin Smith on Instagram. Um, so I, you know, see when he's working on scripts and things. So he was, uh, he was on my brain for whatever reason. So I half threw out that guess as a joke, um, but yeah, it was it was interesting that uh, to see that my guess was most likely correct. It got so awkward, you knew it was. Yeah, <laughs> which he probably didn't count on me guessing. <laughs> no, he didn't. If you re-listen to the episode, I had to cut all that out to let Thomas sleep at night. But um, yeah, it was. It was a good guess. And the game looks like it looks like a cross between River City Ransom in terms of like sprite sizes. But uh, Turtles to the arcade game in terms yeah. of like depth of screen and stuff. And 
you know, there's a stigma around licensed games that probably will continue even today if we're taking money for games and being able to make them based on licensed properties. But Mall Brawl, I think, gets around. Have you seen some of the, the GIFs? Oh, yeah. It looks fantastic. No, have you seen some of the GIFs? No, I haven't seen those. I'll have to link you then. I don't know. <laughs> no, it, it looks very impressive. Um, the controls, I mean, you can tell sort of, you know, when, when Jay or Silent Bob is surrounded by enemies and you can see him kind of moving, you know, attacking one way, turning, attacking the other way. It looks like the controls are very, very tight. Uh, so I'm excited to give it a try. Well, there's multi-genres too. There, there's this uh, GIF I've been seeing of you're like driving a shopping cart through things like uh, Battle Toads or like the surf level on the quite excellent homebrew lizard. Yes. And it, it's just like he's really they probably said this is what we want and he said this is what I can do and just let me do it. And they were like yeah okay sure. It, it's phenomenal. And it was released uh several months ago on limited run games as a collector's edition and then kind of an open pre-order for anybody that wants it they can still still to this day buy it and when is that supposed to ship do you know i said quarter one 2020 i'm still kind of i you know i'm gonna save my pennies and buy resale limited edition because you know, Limited Run has a business model that I don't always agree with, and <laughs> I, I, you, you've said worse. I have said something very similar on Twitter very recently. <laughs> yeah, it, it's true, but with, with this one in particular, like, I want the, the full version. And it, yeah, I didn't, I didn't until I started seeing images of it, and then I was like, oh my goodness, this is it. Like it's not just a cash grab. He actually made a good game. It's not. And and that's what I love about passionate homebrewers is they can be presented with a cash grab, but they're going to take sort of the higher road with it. And yeah. That, and that's, that's a battle that I'm fighting right now because I know you are. And I feel bad saying all these things. No, no, but it's true because you know, they're paying you X dollar amount. And you have X deadline. So when you encounter problems, you're like, how much effort do I want to put into solving this? Because I could half-ass it and get through it. Or I could take the time to make it into a game that I would like to play. And that is where I think the people that truly care about these games, like we are going to strive to make it a quality game, even if it could um, initially be seen as a cash grab. Like, we want the game to be quality. That's something I've been told that is not allowed to exist with Homebrew. We're just making games. We're just schlocking stuff out there. But it, it's true. We're, we're actually, most of us are individuals committed to making something we're genuinely proud of. And with Thomas and you, Kevin, uh, and John, the artist of Kevin's <laughs> secret project, uh, you can really see like if you were just given a chunk of money to make whatever they don't care, as long as they can sell it, 
like you make one game but if you actually care you go a whole different mile with things and yeah and you never know what that's going to lead to like it could lead to more possibilities so you well, definitely want to keep the door that, open to that if you look at the history of 90s console developers like most of the ones that just took the money for the batman game ocean they went <laughs> out of business like because they made garbage games whereas things yeah. like rare or things that i don't come to mind at the moment um they soldiered on and like because they made good games they just happened to have a license with it and that that's how i still view you guys is you would make an amazing game regardless of the license or not and so and it's it's commendable kudos sir thank you say that again when i'm finished with the game (laughs) well if i can actually pull it off there's that. We may never actually review whatever Kevin's mysteriously working on because it's so bad. Yep. Never be, never to be heard of again. Tell me, did you see this Dead Tomb game? No, I saw it a couple years ago. And then I kind oh, of forgot. It's been around that long? Yeah, we talked about it a few years ago, or a couple years ago. They, they posted, like, they being Collector Vision, uh, which is... JF Jean-Francois, which I'm probably butchering, but I'm sorry. And him and John Lester, and there's like two or three other guys for Collector Vision, two of which I hung out with uh, <laughs> last year. Russ and the other dude who is French, but um, or Quebecois. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, you've lost me. Uh, he, he's Quebecian. Quebecian? Okay. I, I think, I think he likes, they prefer he likes Cape... poutine. <laughs> yeah, yes, he does. I'm um, stereotyping. So yeah, Dead Tomb was re- or announced. And Collector Visions had this weird thing where they want to do a lot of things, but they have lost a few programmers over the years to where like they couldn't do the things they thought they were going to be able to do. Uh, mm. The proof in the pudding of that is the Retro Champs, yeah, Retro Champs 2015, I think, where it was three mini games. It was Sydney Hunter, it was this Asteroids ish thing, Meteor Swarm, and this Rad Racer clone. And like the Rad Racer clone was supposed to just be like a small segment of this full game, but it never came out. So it's like, well. Was that the demo or was that the full game? I don't know. <laughs> but regardless, so they announced this dead tomb and it was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of believe it when I see it. But, you know, I met these guys. They're very genuine. Like things happen. And there's, there's not that many people in the world that can really program for the NES. I know, I know there's a lot that could, but there's not a lot to do. Uh, if, right. You know, I, when I talk with real programmers, like, well, I could do that. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I know you could, but are you? No, I'd never do that, <laughs> especially for that that kind of money. And it's like, oh, OK, see, that's what I mean. But uh, so Dead Tomb was announced and it was this point and click. And Kevin, which he doesn't remember, was like, look, it's a point and click. And I was like, yeah, you'll love this. And he was like, yeah, I'll always remember this. And he never did. That sounds like me. Yeah, <laughs> except the part where I said I will always remember this. <laughs> okay, I, I I had lived a little, and so about like two months ago, they finally were like, "Hey, look, this Dead Tomb game is done." I was like flabbergasted, like, 
they finished this. That's awesome. They finally like figured it out. And mm-hmm. Kevin was like, I've never heard of this. Have you heard of it? And I was like, yeah, you told me about it. <laughs> Apparently I meant So it has, th- have they taken orders for it? I think it'll ship like right now. If oh. you, well, I must've if- completely missed that because I remember them posting the, Hey, the game's done. Check back soon. But I don't remember seeing anything since then. So I'm sad that I missed. Uh, hopefully I didn't miss out on getting a copy. You know, Collectivision is they're in the business to keep making games, so I think that you'll you'll probably be able to buy their stuff for a while. They they finally finished Sydney Hunter on the Super Nintendo, which is one of the very absolutely few Super Nintendo homebrews, which is why there is not a Super Nintendo homebrew podcast. Finally finished that. They've also been working on Justice Beaver, which I think was a play on. Justin Bieber, uh, but that, <laughs> that joke is kind of come and gone, but they're still finishing it. I still get updates every few months of like, hey, we're still working on this. We're not dead. And yeah, I mean, they, they mostly do stuff for ColecoVision. And so NES, Super Nintendo, th- those are kind of different. Uh, can you buy Dead Tomb right now? Doesn't look like it. I don't see uh, an add to cart button. Oh, it looks like it might still be a little while before you can pre-order. I guess I was sort of mistaken in that now that I actually try to go buy it. I've been a little strapped for cash lately, so I haven't actually bought things, but <laughs> I thought I could. Uh, it should be coming out soon. I mean, the game is done. The box art, uh, I need to find whoever did this because I need this type of box art. This is great. Yeah, it looks amazing. Yeah, it looks like like November 25th is when they announced that the game was done. But yeah, okay. they haven't said anything since then about it. They're stand-up guys. I, th- I, th- I think most people know John Lester from the podcast that he runs, and he also runs the Let's... Not Let's Play Gaming Expo. No, it is uh, LPG. It's the Game On Expo. It's the other one down. Is that it's that the- Gamester 81? Oh, yeah, Gamester 81. Um, he does Cal... No, he doesn't do Cal. It's, that's Hancock. Hancock knows Callis. I mean, John's usually okay. there, but John does the Game On Expo, which I always get it confused with the uh, Let's Play Gaming Expo run by Ferris because it's they're all in the south to me at a certain point. Right. South. Everything's south of <laughs> nearly Canada. So, right. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really enjoyed your comments about um, Dead Tomb on Twitter, Kevin, because they were like, uh, somebody else has finally made another point and click. Now I don't have to. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Because like when you're making it, you never get that experience of getting to sit down and play something new, like in the genre that you love. So I'm very excited and I will always remember this. Did you know that it's that time of year again? What time of year? The new year? The Nest Dev Compo 2020. Ooh, so that's happening. It's it's perfect vision here. Ah, I see what you did there. So yes, the Nestev 2020 competition has been announced. I I feel like Doug made a game or is making a game. Tolbear or Talbert, depending on who you ask. He's already submitted his. I think there's one other submission, but it's still wide open. 
anybody could take it because I'm pretty sure they all made four player games, which will be the bottom of the barrel. And... <laughs> Sorry, buddies. Uh, I feel you. I feel yeah. you. Yeah, multiplayer. No, we're good. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, you know, Brad Bateman runs it. Not Brad Smith who did Lizard, but Brad Bateman who did uh, graphics for Larry. Graphics for Larry and something Harvey or Harry. I forget. Those two. It was on a calendar once upon a time. It was. That's that's the sad thing. Oh, he listens to the podcast. Can we just tell him to finish that right now? Uh, we can. I feel like we might be waiting until his kids go to college, though. Yeah, so I guess we really shouldn't hassle him. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the compos here. I mean, that's how a lot of people have gotten their start over the years. Uh, Chris Cacciatore with Nebs and Debs, which I think you probably know about by now in this episode. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, Antoine with Twin Dragons. Cert, who did the art for that. Oh, Project Blue. That was that was a compo runner-upper. Er. Story by Tom Libak. Nobody's nobody's ever heard of Tom, sadly. <laughs> That's sad. You have. You know who he is, right? Of course. No, I don't. Did Gem Venture in Love Story and like a couple of we. All right, and that's my personal quest to get somebody on the show. Um, yeah, uh, various people over the years have have either oh Callie with streamers. Ah, yes. The Nest of Competition is a place where a lot of people get their start, or a lot of people leave their mark, or. A lot of people just do a one-time thing that is very cool, so feel free to be a part of that. Um, even with just the voting or the comments, uh, it's all over on the forums. It's a wonderful time. Yeah, have you seen that Paul uh, has been working on some some fancy internet connectivity for a uh, NES cartridge mapper? Oh, I... I, I don't want to be a kind of a negative Nancy or Bo, uh, but the NES coming to the internet has been fraught with almosts. False starts? False starts, <laughs> sure. Um, you know, Joe from Emblers Industries, he's... He's been working on his for several years, and he's got it figured out. It's just there's some issues. Antoine from Broke Studios, Twin Dragons, uh, Bass Def, great guy, all that good stuff. Also, he had this internet thing happening, and then he, he got busy with other things. Like, we haven't heard a lot from him since. I'm sure, I'm sure both of them are still working on it. And then Noted. Roger Biden, Badone? He was working the, on one. Yeah, he had his um. I like what's Roger. the game? What's the game he did? Oh, um, Super Tilt Bros. Yes. Yeah, he's been working on getting that playing online. So, like, all of these different people are working on sort of individual projects to bring the NES, you know, into the twenty-first century or whatever. Oh, late mid mid to late nineties. Oh yeah. yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been slow going. Means what for us as developers, Kevin? <sighs> well, I mean, immediately 
it means that we can bring things like, uh, you know, in the early 90s when BBSs, which are bulletin board systems on the computers, when those online games started becoming a thing where one person gets online at a time, sort of does some, oh, some stuff, and this then the other person gets on. Yeah, it's it's not immediate, like, you can't get online and play Mortal Kombat on the NES. And we might get to that point, but in the immediate future, it doesn't look like that sort of thing is going to be a possibility. Um, but yeah, there will be some things like if we wanted to play Risk online, that would be doable because it's one turn at a time. There would be enough time for the data to be sent to the server. Um, anything that's not real, real-time combat, basically, uh, would be pretty doable. And I guess it means unicorn is going to happen if if that's what you were getting at. Oh, unicorn! <laughs> okay. Yes, the game that I started. Uh, after sneak and peek. It's been a Early? while. Yeah, it's been a while. Twenty ten, maybe. Once every two weeks, I do a search for NES RPG and just see what images come back that might inspire me for talked about initially. And inevitably, Unicorn comes back in one of those 300 searches. That is the image that got you involved, right? In this community? Lured you in? It's one of them. It's one of them that showed me that an RPG was possible, even though Unicorn is definitely not the RPG I thought it was. But Right. So Paul, you know, he he manufactures circuit boards. Now, Paul is also a very good programmer, a swell gentleman, and he did things like the expansion audio adapter and things like that. But he's building this board that, like, we can just make the games that have always been on our mind. Which, when we've talked with Brian before about Unicorn, uh, Bunny Boy from Retro USB, it's always, if you make the game, we'll build the board. Well, at some point the board manufacturer has to step up and say, you know what? I'll build the board. Now you make the game. Like, yes, you've got some ideas, but I'll make the darn thing. And so Paul, Paul is apparently going to make it. And last I talked to him, it was kind of, uh, I don't know what license he'll release under, but it's kind of open source where boards can be made by many people but we can all use it to develop for. Yeah, and he's doing a really good job. Um, he could very easily finish it for a specific project, but he's trying to make it as feature-filled and sort of universally capable as possible. Um, he wants all different types of projects to be able to do it. So, um, he's, he's done some really cool stuff, and he, we have a little channel in Discord where he Every every week when he has a live stream, when he sort of works on this stuff, when he finishes, he comes in there and gives us all his his progress reports. So seeing uh, the different iterations week after week and the progress he's made, it's exciting because I know that it's finally going to happen. It's no longer if, it's it's when, and we're close. He's close. <laughs> All right, Kevin, let's uh, finish this out with the positives of what has come out recently. Okay, well. As in recently, as in you can buy and get it within about a week or two. 
Uh, so Christmas 28-bit Christmas 2019 um, was uh, released recently. Uh, the ROM is, of course, free if you go to RetroUSB.com. You can download that ROM. It's actually a sequel to my uh, 2012, 2012? I'm going with game study hall. Um, so it's really cool. It, they added some vertical scrolling. Uh, it was actually, uh, a lot of it was reprogrammed by Brian Parker at Retro USB, level designed by Mog. Uh, I did a little bit of programming to tweak some stuff that they wanted, but uh, it's they took the ideas that I had back in the day and made it uh, way more fun. Um, so yeah, if you like that original game, check that out. Uh, and you might be able to buy it if you go to RetroUSB.com. I don't know if it's still available, um, but regardless, you can download the ROM, play it on your favorite uh, flash cart of choice. Uh, I saw on Twitter recently that KevBot, uh, Kevin Hirschberger, has uh, made very good progress on Candelabra Astasero. Um, that Kickstarter uh, finished uh, last year at some point. And he's uh, run into some issues uh, getting everything done with Candelabra Stasero. And, you know, he's also uh, releasing the Mad Wizard and Amundus. You could sort of buy the, the three pack. Um, but that looks to be shipping somewhat soon. Uh, so yeah. if you did not get a copy of that, I think you still can. You might have to contact him directly. I don't know where you can uh, buy it online, but I know that he has copies will be happy to sell you. That is actually a game that will be offered eventually by the 6502 Collective. I I went down to Kev's place a few weeks ago. We flashed 710 copies of things. Holy cow. And yes. Yeah, I went down for a few days. Um, they they take some time, but that's all ready to go. He's He actually just uh, a couple hours before this podcast, he caught is the best way to ship things because I'm ready to do that this week. So you mm-hmm. should be seeing your copies very soon in the mail. Sweet. And if you still wanted to get one, please contact him, contact me, and we will make that happen. I know that uh, Rachel was at Magfest this past weekend, uh, selling some uh, highly desired copies of Electronic Sweet and Fun, uh, a sort of fortune teller. A uh, game that she programmed a number of years ago, and people oh, have like five years ago. It's yeah, been it's been way some too time. Long. But people have always clamored for a physical copy, and she's always said, you know, oh, I'll think about it. I might do it one day. Well, she finally decided uh, at Magfest 2020 to bring some copies on hand that she put together with uh, Andrew Raitano, Super Russian Roulette. Yep, and those sold out really quickly. And I guess there was enough demand there at the expo that she got together with uh, Justin, Neo Dolfino, Deadeye, Chris Brand, uh, Sean Robinson, um, some other people that got together and actually made some more copies there on the fly and sort of had this arts and crafts uh, session where they decorated the carts and they had a good time as far as I uh, understand. So, um, those some... tweets that seem pretty special. Yeah, and it makes me happy that there are finally some copies floating around. I'm not gonna lie, like I talked to her last year about it like at least two times, and then I bugged her after the show and was like, Look, can I please just get a copy of this game that I've wanted for years? 
because she made three copies originally, like back in 2016 or so. And I didn't get one of those, and I could never get any of the owners to part with them. And so I asked her about this one, and she finally sent me a copy, and it had, like, stickers and rainbows on it. And I didn't really know what to do with that. I was like, okay, this isn't a label. This is just, like, a white cart with, like, arts and crafts hours. And so it's really good to see her, like, fulfill that with the the current ones is it's still arts and crafts hour this is how it's meant to be yep and let's see uh also at magfest 2020 was uh depths by cpp chris which yeah we you know we've really talked cool about, looking game yeah and we've talked about him a lot he's he's done a lot of things he was doing some internet stuff he he did the backing up of a uh, nintendo age and he he's just been an active person in the community, but he finally released a game on cart at the expo, and that's that's pretty cool. Oh, he also did the um sort of game creation utility, the adventure game maker thing. Yeah, but what's really cool about this uh, depths game is I guess it was inspired by like an online article he read or something. Um, but I guess it has to do with feelings of like uh, solitude and you know sort of mental health uh, aspects. So um, there's some cool stuff in the game uh, that has to do with like suicide awareness and stuff. So um, it's worth it's worth uh, checking out. It's it's nice to see a game uh, made for more purpose than just existing. You know. Yeah, and, and Chris has always struck me. I've met him a couple times now. Um, thoughtful guy. He he's quiet. He's nice. He's easygoing. Yeah, so it's great to see him get a game out there that other people can experience. And if you're interested, he is looking not for pre-orders necessarily, but um, he's going to make as many as people are interested in buying. It, it costs money to make games, so. <laughs> Not a lot of people realize that, Kevin. It does cost money to buy circuit boards, buy cartridges, <laughs> buy labels. Yeah. And it's kind of a pain in the ass to put them together. <laughs> and I guess uh, What Remains, that that officially came out, right? Like, he, he ships some copies? No, I, I put that in the notes so you would ask. Um, no, it, it has not. But it's very close. Good. When when it's released, you will know because you will get a copy and I will get a copy and we'll pay way too much for them, but we'll enjoy it. <laughs> MC1, man, that's not cheap. And then the other one that comes to mind is, how do you pronounce this? Ba- Bessie Def? Bessie Def sounds good to me. Okay. I'd, I'd call it Bass Def, but okay. that's just because I, I've got that like... Moe's deaf Jack Black vibe to this whole thing. I see, I see. Face deaf. But yeah, mm. Broke uh, Broke Studios is uh, producing that, right? Yeah, and so they did Twin Dragons, as we've talked about about three times in this episode. <laughs> and, as we should. Well, you know, it, it's hard. Like, you've developed an engine, you've made a game, and then somebody's like, hey, could you make a game for us? And you're like, you know what? I do have this engine sitting right here. They didn't you know, just cash grab it and just recycle things. They actually made a whole new game, which seems 
And this, this is the hardest part about what'd you call it? Bassy deaf? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is, you know, I asked a lot of questions when it first came out because I was very curious and there was no information that was able to be revealed at the time. And so I was just like, this is weird. Like what I'm, what would I actually be buying if I back this, you know, pre-order? And it turns out to actually be a very solid platformer, very much along the lines of Twin Dragons. So, oh, cool. Yeah, if you like Twin Dragons, this is this is the game for you. It's made by the same people, and it probably has about the same feel. But it's probably because Antoine seems like a stand-up guy. It's you know, it's improved upon everything that came before it. So, yeah, I- I'm curious to get a copy. I need to actually buy one, and then down and compare the two and see you know how much it's grown but people you just have the confidence in you know yes he is a a quadruple so i'm not sure it's going to be great that's a wicked beard yes for sure and he's a very highly accomplished musician also is he yes he sent me some of his band's music one time and we had a nice uh a nice moment didn't even know that yeah he's a multi-talented individual in the spirit of that, uh, I guess we should probably play some music from this uh, bass def. Although this track is not, the music on this uh, game was not done by Antoine, but done by Jibbe, uh, the artist of the comics that go with the game. But uh, yeah, the, it'll be the map theme. But Kevin, you want to close us out? Uh, but as always, if you have questions, you can reach us at nesassemblyline at gmail.com. We will uh, check that email hopefully more frequently in the future and answer any questions you might have on a future episode. You can reach us on Twitter. Uh, I, Kevin, can be found at a ton of glaciers. Bo can be uh, found at Soul Goose. And let's see, you cannot find us at Nintendo Age, but if you want to join Video Game Sage, you're more than welcome to. You may or may not be able to reach us there. Oh, yes. If you ever actually want to get a hold of either of us, please just email us. (laughs) But that's it, and we appreciate you tuning in, and we will see you next time.